folks, very warm welcome to our latest edition of the Generation Podcast, where we talk about mission, evangelism and various other things from a Scottish perspective, but not entirely from a Scottish perspective. We go global. And my guest today is Rob. He's a language consultant and he works in Central Asia. He works in the Kurdistan region of Iran. Rob, welcome to the Generation Podcast. Thank you, David, for having me on here. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, wow, lovely English accent. Can you tell us a little bit just uh, how you became a Christian? Well, um, I, I, I'd like to throw in there that uh, I'm a MacLeod by descent. Um, Excellent. On my father's <laughs> side. Yeah. Yeah. As long as it's a Sky McLeod and not a Lewis McLeod, you're okay. Yeah, my, my knowledge of the family history is a bit sketchy, I'm afraid. And uh, Just as well. Yeah. Um, aside from the, the fact that my father was always one for, for talking about things being white rather than white. That was about all that was left of his Scottish ancestry and his language. But um, but no, I've uh, been to Scotland and um, I'm hope to, hoping to speak a little bit more about uh, the... Um, the Sing Psalms um, app that uh, that I use a lot. So I'm a big fan of the Free Church of Scotland's um, singing of the Psalms. Um, but yeah, I grew up in uh, in the south of England, and uh, I was converted at age 17. And uh, and then I guess the first church I really evangelical church. How, how did that happen, Jerry? I mean, tell us a little bit about circumstances. Did you read the Bible? Did someone well, witness to you? Was that a sermon? Well, I mean, yeah, I remember. I remember some faithful person at a Sunday school um, teaching me a story about, um, I, as I remember, there was a, a boy who, who's, uh, whose, whose brother was condemned to death. And he decided that he loved his brother so much that he was going to step up and be executed in his place. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, what a sacrifice. And maybe I, I'm sure I probably wasn't listening to the Sunday school lesson properly. I thought, wow, who on earth would do that? When I was 14, I went to a school Christian forum, um, and they they preached the gospel there. And that was when, actually, I understood that Jesus was the one that I'd been been learning about at Sunday school, um, that he had stepped in to die uh, on the cross in our place. And uh, I was drawn towards Christianity. I thought of myself as a Christian at that point, sort of, um, you know, fairly regularly going to the parish church um, with my family and uh, school chapel and all that and uh, but there was quite a lot of inner wrestling going on conviction of sin feeling that i wasn't worthy that i could never keep up the christian life and when i was 17 i went for the wrong reasons to a christian camp and i was converted there um and uh, yeah i went away confessing christ as lord and i knew i'd get stick from from friends and a teacher at school but uh, um but that was the beginning of my christian life Okay, and did you go off to study? So I studied history um, at University College, Oxford. Um, uh, yeah, r- reminds me that uh, a guy called Ewan Dodds was at the college with me, who okay. is uh, yeah. known to you, hopefully, and your denomination. Well, hopefully Ewan is listening in. Okay, well, greetings, Ewan. It's been great to catch up um, with you and uh, to draw some comparisons between the lovely Fort William district and uh, the Lakeland of De Hook in Kurdistan, although we're quite a, few degrees, similar, quite a few similar. degrees warmer than Fort William. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm very grateful for being taught the scriptures faithfully at St. Ebbs, Oxford, um, Vaughan Roberts and others, um, preaching, preaching the Bible week in, week out. 
And uh, and then I remember I looked back at what I recall as a boring sermon from the Psalms, one Mission Sunday. And that sermon got me thinking, well, you know, I quite like languages, willing to try different cultures. Maybe I should, um, you know, pursue the, 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 the avenues for going and serving overseas. And that was a sort of seed in my thinking. Um, and then I met someone 20 years older than me who was serving in Iraqi Kurdistan, um, proclaiming the gospel, translating the Bible into Sarani Kurdish. And that gave me a kind of a path to follow, to start praying for the Kurds, learn a bit of their language, even while still living in Oxford. So that was the beginnings of my, my journey into okay. serving the Lord overseas. Okay, so your call to mission and your call to Kurdistan were basically simultaneous. Did you consider any other options? Uh, well, uh, I I kind of I went on a two week trip teaching English in a dusty community outside, just outside Istanbul, and it turned out those that community was a Kurdish community. Um, so they were delighted when at that stage I only knew a few. You know, I could name you know a chicken and a uh, and a cow and a, and a flower in, in, in Kurdish. But they thought that was the bee's knees, that this foreigner was coming in, was speaking Kurdish. So I got a sense of what that was like. Um, and then, um, yeah, so I, I was very convicted by the statistics about the 1040 window, how few workers there were um, in the uh, the Muslim world. And uh, so was was pursuing opportunities there. But But God kept opening doors for me to... Uh, to learn Kurdish, make Kurdish friends, and um, yeah, we met some some Kurds from Eastern Turkey, from Sweden, um, in Oxford, and befriended them. Went to visit them in Sweden, um, visited them and their family back in Eastern Turkey. So, so God was opening doors over the years. Okay, can you describe a little bit uh, of the context of uh, the Kurdistan region? And also, maybe, I don't think most folk are aware of who the Kurds are. Um, okay. Is it a sort of peripatetic nation, a people group, a country, or all of the above? Okay, well, people say things like they're the largest uh, people group in the world without a state of their own. So uh, if you say mm, Kurdistan's not a country, mm, that's a little bit, uh, a little bit ambiguous. They're basically a nation without a state. So the Kurds live in, in order of population in Turkey, Iraq and Iran, roughly similar sized populations, and then a smaller population in Syria, many of whom actually have now come to northern Iraq as, uh, as refugees. Um, so there's a lot of Syrian Kurds um, where we live in Tehuk. And then smaller communities in the former Soviet states. Uh, but that's significant because Bible translation has proceeded faster amongst the Yazidi background believers of Russia, Armenia, and Georgia than it has in other regions. So the first Kurdish, Northern Kurdish New Testament was written in the Cyrillic script. And there's quite a few songs coming out of, um, out of that context as well. So, so Kurds are scattered over various places. And then many Kurds in Germany, Sweden, Nashville, Tennessee, Birmingham, London, many British cities, Glasgow. I've certainly met uh, <laughs> met a Kurd in Iraqi Kurdistan who, um, yeah, who was in Glasgow. Yeah, so do they like country and western music? Is that why Nashville is such a? Uh, why okay. have they gone to Nashville? Um, there is a story behind where where the Kurds settled in in the US, um, which involved some thoughtful person 
realizing whereabouts in the US there would be Christians who would host Kurds well. And when all the Kurds who got airlifted out of Kurdistan in Clinton's presidency, um, they were then taken off to the island of Guam, I think. And then from there, they had to find places for them to go. And this guy who had some power and authority said, well, I suggest these places. That's the story I heard that uh, okay. they were there. And, and so built, there were Christians who were in a position to welcome them. But the community has grown there. It's known as Little Kurdistan. Um, yeah. So do you work in a city uh, or a rural environment? Uh, we work in the third largest city of the Kurdistan region. Um, and we live right on the west side of it. So it feels a bit villagey. Um, we used to keep chickens and... Uh, you just, I just like getting out on my bike and you're out in the hills and uh, you can just hike up the hills and get a great view of the Tigris River, which was dammed in about in the 1980s. So a huge, great lake there, the reservoir. Um, you can see all that from the mountains. Um, but in terms of who the Kurds are, it's often good to think about history because the Kurds see themselves as the modern day descendants of the Medes. And uh, although some people have... Uh, strongly disputed this i think that is actually a fair uh, description of of the modern day kurds the medes are mentioned in in history up until around 200 ad and then they just fall they fall off the map so what happened to the medes you know they didn't all get ex they didn't all get exterminated um they just came to be known as they were a confederation of people and they came to be known in other ways uh, not as medes and you find uh, Xenophon, actually, 400 BC, writing about the Karduhoi. And so they seem to have been the ancient um, descendants of what we call today the Kurds. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, um, so, so the, the Kurds are essentially the, the inhabitants of the Zagros Mountains. And they have migrated a little bit over the years. And there's been some mixing. I'm not saying there's a 100% relation between the ancient Medes and the modern-day Kurds. There's quite a few from Jewish background, and often they're quite proud of their Jewish background, actually, um, the Kurds from with Jewish descent. Some have Armenian or um, Chaldean, Assyrian kind of backgrounds where they've converted out of Judaism, or in this case, out of Christianity into Islam. Um, yeah, so uh, so that's how I would see it. If you, you can read your Bible and and see how there were, there were Medes uh, at the day of Pentecost and say, okay, so God has a plan for these people. Very likely, the gospel was preached in sort of a proto-Kurdish form, you know, in in the Median language, as well as in Arabic. We mustn't hate Arabs because they're listed as um, as one of the nations that was present on the the day of Pentecost. So uh, they're they're a people group without a nation state. And uh, they have an interesting uh, ethnic ancestry, um, which put them a lot closer to the action than the English and the Scots ever were. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the religious background. You, I assume that they're basically 100% uh, Muslim? Uh, well, statistically, they are, um, they are kind of 90-something percent Muslim. Um, the, the, it's not a hundred percent. For at least one reason is that um, the, there's a significant population of Yazidis um, who are worshippers of the peacock angel, um, and they are definitely not Muslims. Um, and they were centered around Mount Sinjar, which ISIS attacked in 2014. And so, hundreds of thousands of Yazidis 
came and their Kurdish speaking um, people came to the Duhok province and uh, yeah, some elsewhere, but mainly in the Duhok province and our city just sort of, well, that province grew in size massively with these huge refugee camps. Um, so yeah, they're not a hundred percent Muslim, the, but the, there's just, uh, until the 1990s, the just, it was almost inconceivable, the idea that you'd have a Kurdish speaking church. So some of the first efforts at Protestant church planting among the Kurds were known as Kurdzaman church, which is a sort of funny name. I mean, you know, does anyone have a, a, a denomination called the, the Francophone denomination or the, you know, Spanish speaking church? It just, it's sort of, you wouldn't ever call a denomination um, that, but it made an important point that this was not an Armenian or an Assyrian speaking church, not an Arabic speaking church, but a Kurdophone church. Um, and I think that's uh, a fair description of what, uh, what should be a distinctive of, of, of churches that, that grow up in the Kurdistan region, provided the language itself is not idolized, which can be, which can be a problem. Yeah. Are they highly nationalistic? Uh, they are. Um, they're very, they're very patriotic. Um, but I, I thought a lot about patriotism and, and nationalism. Um, on the on the day when there was a big rally in the football stadium in favour of the referendum voting for, which uh, you know overwhelmingly said yes to um, to the emergence of an independent Kurdistan. Uh, on on that day when we we came near to where there were huge crowds at the football stadium, we we watched the crowds leave there and we just looked at the litter that was strewn everywhere as people came out of that stadium. It was absolutely disgusting. And I was struck by how, what sort of a patriotism is this that wants to get all hyped up about your nation, but just pollutes the place? You know, what, what kind of a superficial love for a country is that? And, and that can sound a bit like I'm being a bit pernickety here. But this is a huge, huge problem. There's a video put out on, on the kind of Kurdish BBC, um, the Rudow channel, which had um, a feature about a farmer um, whose animals have been dying because they're eating so much plastic. I mean, you go out into the beautiful picnic spots and they are just covered in plastic and other waste. And it kills the economy as well as the, as well as the, the environment and their tourist industry. Um, you, so, I mean, it may sound a, a quirky question, but do you think all that can be traced back to theology and a philosophical worldview? Uh, absolutely, view of, yeah. Of care, creation, Absolutely, yeah. David. Yeah, I, I've I've preached on this. Uh, we did a series on the Psalms in uh, in Kurdish fellowship in Duhok, and we did Psalm eight. <clears throat> and I began with the problem of litter, and then mm. tried to yeah. I don't want to be, I don't want to be, you know, zoning in on one little problem. I, I I want to get people thinking with the big theological thoughts about what 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 these problems come from. And as you say, there is a theological root to this, and that is that I said okay. Um, there's a problem with, uh, how, how did I put it? Um, I, common word they use for responsibility, mesuliet. I said, well, people are not taking responsibility for, for the, they say, oh, well, the government will pick it up. Literally, they go on picnics and the better people, the more careful people, will put their trash in black bin bags and they'll leave it at the, the, the picnic spot. And they say, look, the Napoleon Bangladeshi trucks, they'll come around and they'll pick these things up. Well, of course, that night, a fox or a jackal will get to it and will shred it open and, and will we'll strew all of the, the trash around the, 
the picnic site. So it's very short-sighted. But fundamentally, they don't see themselves as being put in the garden to work the ground and to keep it. Theologically, you can trace this back to a wrong understanding of creation and fall, because according to their worldview, Adam and Eve were, were in heaven, and then after they fell, they were thrown down to the earth as a kind of punishment. So work in their ethic, in, in, in their worldview, work is kind of a necessary evil. Whereas for us, work is a good part of creation. And we don't just mean your nine to five job. We mean your Genesis 2.15 role of working the ground and taking care of it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I really, I love to use Psalm 8 to, to point people to how, who is it who's in charge of the animals over all the earth? Who has all these things under their feet? It's mankind, yeah. not the government, not, not, not the government. You are a mesul, so you have mesuliet. You are, you are an authority and you have responsibility. You, know, you are in government, and that's hugely lacking from, from their political discourse, the idea that each person has his own kingdom that he must rule over responsibly. They're always just saying, oh, what can we do? You know, the authorities yeah. are just fools. So they're always passing the buck rather than saying, actually, what can I do? Yeah. Okay, now, about three or four times in our short conversation so far, yeah. you have mentioned the Psalms. Okay. So I gather that you're a bit of a Psalm fan. Um, would that be true? Definitely, yeah. Um, I first came across the... Um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't from... Not from a background where the singing of Psalms was done very much. Um, that's just part of the culture, the history... That psalm singing has dropped out of much of worship in the West. But when I was at Oak Hill College, um, I came across the Sing Psalms book from the Free Church of Scotland, um, metrical psalm singing in modern English. I'm a big fan. I've got uh, the app on my on my phone here. Good man. Good man. I've Quick plug. With 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 tunes to, um, I've even written a couple of tunes myself. Um, I, I played in a band at school, just sort of messing around with my friends. So I kind of have an appreciation of music, but I'm not particularly musical myself. But um, so I love singing the Psalms in English and, and particularly to take um, folk tunes in English and, and use those. So, um, you know, the, the song that Simon and Garfunkel made famous, Scarborough Fair, that's a long meter tune. And you can use that with some uh, some 2022, for example. Um <laughs> Uh, there, are, there are other ones that I've experimented with or, or um, hymn tunes like Be Thou My Vision, originally an Irish love song, I think works well with Psalm 95. Um, so, so I'm, yeah, I'm a big, big fan of uh, singing the Psalms. And m- my experience with, uh, with, with Kurdish is that without, without having some, some lead in, I'm able to say, look, can I read you a poem in Kurdish? And I never remember someone say no to that. So I say, well, this is a, um, sometimes I introduce it or I just read it. And uh, and often they say to me, oh, did you write that? And I say, no, <laughs> King David wrote that. You know, they assume that I'm reading a poem that I've written. Okay, but so, so do, do, just stop you, do, do Islam and Christians share the Psalms commonly? I mean, would the Psalms be a book that's recognized in the Islamic canon of religious books? Yeah, it, so so the 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 view of, um, of of salvation history, if you like, um, according to Islam, is that God sent the Taurat to Moses. He sent the Zabur to David. He sent the Injil to Isa, and then sent the 
Quran to Muhammad. Um, so so they, 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 they have a recognition of, of the book of Psalms, but uh, it doesn't seem to be taught about very much in Islamic education. So um, I sometimes just ask some basic questions, you know, how many Psalms are that people have no idea? Um, and so I say, well, there are 150 of them, and uh, there's a lot of sadness in there, but um, there's this figure who suffers a lot in the Psalms. And then the, the, the chorus at the end, 146 to 150, there's this chorus of praise that uh, salvation is going out to, to all the nations. It's because he's raised up a horn for us. And, um, and we believe that person is the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus. Now, that's my sort of full-on gospel presentation coming out of there. But, but sometimes I just, I'll read Psalm 23 or I'll read Psalm 100 as a prayer of thanksgiving or I memorably, I was in some tents, a refugee camp, and one guy, I think he'd been a headmaster in, in, in a school, and he, just a few years after, he'd been turfed out of their villages. Many men were massacred, women enslaved by, by ISIS. And so I read Psalm 94 um, to him, at least some of it. And as I got, got up to about verse, uh, about verse 7 in, in Psalm 94, he, he interrupted me and he said, this is Dash. He he just I'm picking it up from the metrical translation here. It says here, um, Oh Lord, they crush your people, oppress the, your heritage, the widow, stranger, orphan, they murder in their rage. They say God does not notice, the Lord has closed his eyes. And and he interrupted me and said, That is Dash, that's ISIS. You know, so so he he was just really, really sensing that this is speaking about a, a very contemporary problem. Um, you know, this was a Yazidi man, um, would would not you know, have much place for the Psalms in his um, in his in his religious life uh, formally, but it, it, it speaks very powerfully. And, and people people are awkward, feel awkward in the West about Psalm ninety four because it begins, "O Lord, the God of vengeance, O righteous God, shine forth." And we feel awkward singing for God to say vengeance. Then we say the Lord's prayer, and it says, "You know, Your kingdom come," which means yeah. there will be judgment. But we find it hard to sing that because we because we've just been yeah. Asked Worship has been sentimentalized. Anyway, yeah, I, I mean, when my kids were young, we used to eat yogurt, and uh, you know, they say, "Dad, Dad, we don't want the one with the bits in it." Yeah. So it seems to me that you know, Western Christian music doesn't mm. want the bits in it, and yeah. you know, the, the Psalms have got a lot of bits in it, haven't they? That's right. Yeah, they got a lot of bits in here, yeah. um, and they're they're harder to digest, but they're very sweet when you do digest them because they yeah. they provide they provide the kind of worship that can make sense of the appalling sufferings that people have gone through um and and it, it it's not it, it's not dangerous and unhealthy to sing things like psalm um psalm 94 it's very therapeutic it's it's cathartic i i was uh, i was with with a, a village of armenians now the armenians came to the kurdistan region um after or you know, in the, in the midst of a genocide, 1916, and they found uh, some refuge from the Muslim Kurds in the Kurdistan region. Um, and they may have already been Kurdish-speaking, or or they quickly assimilated in terms of their language. So they're they're Kurdish speakers. They um, a lot of the most of the Armenians in Kurdis, the Kurdistan region speak Kurdish as their mother tongue. Um, anyway, I was visiting this this village and uh, decided to read Psalm one two one two nine. Um, with with one of these guys, and it, and it just struck me as very very 
real for a people whose history, the Armenians, is one of oppression. They have oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel now make this known. They have oppressed me from my youth, yet I have not been overthrown. And then we sing, they drew their plows across my back. The plowmen made their furrows long. I mean, that's torture, isn't it? That's yeah, big. Yeah. The Lord is just. He cut me free from cords of those who did me wrong. I've never seen that psalm um, put, you know, put out to some sweet chorus tune. It, it's just too deep and um, it's, it's full of pain. But it, it, we're encouraged to say, um, to bring this to the Lord. And not to not to not to develop a, a victim mentality, but to give a sense of yeah, we have been mistreated, and for many Christians in some parts of the world, this is the sort of their daily bread. You know how they've been. This is their experience of life, and they should sing about it because the psalm leads them into a place of of saying the prayer is may all who hate Jerusalem be put to shame and turned away. We don't have to throw stones through their window. We don't have to torch their their houses or, you know, or, or attack them. No, may the Lord, um, may the Lord bring them to justice. And that's very therapeutic. Have you taken the project any further in that, have you put them in, Sam's into meter? And is there potential for them to sing Sam's in the Kurdish church? Well, um, it's a good question. I, um, sometimes we're not aware fully of all that's going on. I, I met a Syrian Kurd, um, <laughs> Uh, recently in De Hook. Um He doesn't live in De Hook, but he's been working on songs. Um, and uh, I'd say culturally, one of the weaknesses with, with Kurds is they, they might, they're not great team players. They, they might develop something on their own, but they're not very good at publishing it and sharing it with other people. Now, this, this guy is trying to share what he's produced, but information sharing is, uh, um, is not done very well in Kurdish culture. So we need to pray on for these pioneers who are producing things. Um, but in terms of what have I actually done, I've written up a project. Um, I called it the Shabaz Project because 100 years ago, a great man, a poet called um, Shabaz Imadadun Shabaz in the Punjab, um, he he did some great work over over many decades of um, putting the, the Psalms to, to meter in, in Punjabi. He was a very gifted poet as well as an evangelist. And then um, Western gospel workers worked with him to uh, actually a, a Hindu musician who they who they brought on board to uh, to listen to Shahbaz's metrical translation of the Psalms and then to choose uh, suitable tunes um, for these for these Psalms. So that that's been hugely hugely influential on the punjabi speaking christians of pakistan and india so that's been a bit of a case study for us um but uh, i've i've found it actually frustrating and and have not made much progress myself I, I wouldn't be the one who could um put the psalms into verse form i could have a go at it but i would need someone like shabaz to 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 actually do that um the good thing is with kurdish if you go for the metrical option and i'm not saying it's the only way because there is a tradition of psalm chanting and that can work um but with kurdish they put the they tend to have the verb at the end of the sentence and the verbs often have the same ending so they they rhyme easily um and kurds love rhyme even their kids names they often call their their kids you know nermin shermin evin and they, they, they list their children you say wow i didn't ask you to give me a poem you know um 
But uh, yeah, that's something I'm praying will will be picked up by some. But we have still not, not not got very many believers, and um, few that have really had the word of the Lord in their heart as a fire that's in their in in their bones that they 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 cannot withhold. You know, to use the words of Jeremiah, we're we're praying for people to have that kind of fire in their hearts to get the word of God out. Um, I mean, I started to put together a list of some of the tunes that I found. Uh, on the internet um but i'm not the best guy to do that and it would be great to have someone who has even a just a moderate skill uh, and a, uh, in music and appreciation of music preferably someone who can write who can write, write down the music to annotate and annotate it which is what the westerners did the presbyterian westerners did in in the punjab um but yeah to take stuff from their own folklore traditions and then to to find which of those tunes would work well with which psalms, and then other p- parts of the jigsaw could fall into place. Um, yeah. But we're still behind. You know, in terms of Bible translation, there's still not a printed version in the particular dialect of Kurdish that we use. Although there is a printing of the Book of Psalms in Kurmanji, um, which is very close to the dialect we have. This is all the northern dialect of Kurdish, and they have the whole Bible in the central dialect of Sarani Kurdish. Okay, would, would that be the central dialect? Would that be understandable uh, or understood by the majority of people, or is it so different? Uh, so it's it's interesting actually. The there's a there's a river called the Great the Greater Zab, which flows into the Tigris. And when you cross the the River Zab, um, the dialect changes. It's actually you know quite quite a it really is a border that uh, that that divides the dialects and that's where you move from Dehuk to Erbil and you move to the central dialect. It is very, very different. Sarani is different. They're really different languages grammatically. Um, but crossing the border into Turkey or into Syria, you've the language doesn't change, just some of the some of the uh, uh the vocabulary changes. So it'd be a whole lot easier having um sung psalms that are used in the Dehuk province and then Syria and Turkey and then to have a separate Work for those in Erbil and Sulaymaniyah, off or across into Iran, where they speak Sarani as well. Okay, tell me about the Kurdistan region church. Uh, can it be numbered in terms of hundreds or thousands? Uh, how old is it, and what does it look like? Yeah, well, it, it was kind of a blank, a blank sheet of paper in many ways until the early nineties, and then there was the tragedy of the Kurds fleeing into the mountains to to get away from Saddam's revenge against the uprising against them in 1991 and that was a whole new era for the kurds um and that meant a lot of humanitarian workers came into the region and there were godly people who were sharing the gospel as well as helping people um with their physical needs um and some did become believers then um but little there was little uh, enduring work i would say from that and it's taken a very long time, a kind of quarter of a century for the New Testament to be published in Badini Kurdish, mainly because there just weren't that many local believers that were willing to give their time to checking the translation, making a godly Christian comment on the translation. So thank God the New Testament has been published. Um, in terms of numbers, it's difficult to tell. I mean, honestly, in the whole Dehuk province, which numbers you know, getting on towards a million people, um, it just feels like there's there's only one or two Kurdish-speaking churches. Um, yeah, so it's small church. It's tough. It's really really small. Um, I mean, there are there are about um, there are about eight different 
Arabic-speaking Protestant churches in our city, and there are Kurds who go to those churches. Um, I'm a member of, we're members of the uh, international church, so, you know, English-speaking church in Dehuk, and um, <laughs> some Kurds some Kurds come to that as well. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a day of small things, David, it really is. We, we need your prayers. I mean, is there a Kurdish-speaking church? Would you not be better being part of that as opposed to one of English-speaking churches? We we came across believers and sought to encourage them over the years and have met in our house and have, and have taught people about um, what a church is, the importance of covenanting together um, as a body of believers. Um, and just it just wasn't the Lord's timing. Um, he, he didn't bring together the... Um, the leaders that would that would have formed the nucleus of a Kurdish-speaking church, and so you have to just um, you know play with with the, the the hand that God deals you. Um, it's not a it's not a kind of a no-brainer that you would you would pull yourself into the life of a fledgling Kurdish church. For one thing, you can't have too many foreigners who go to a small church, or else it ceases to be Kurdish in in culture. Um, and then there's issues of um, one's children, you want them to have a good experience of, of, of church. Um, and so in, in some, some cases, I think uh, it is best for expats to go to um, an English-speaking church to be built up week by week, to serve there, to develop good relationships. Um, but I think, I think it's good for international churches to um, not to, uh, you know, to, to sort of, you know, I talked about Kurdish churches can idolise the Kurdish language. Uh, international churches can idolise the English language. Um, and it's important that we seek to do what we can to yeah. translate yeah. and make the gospel known to other people. Okay, as we head into the, the last section, I mean, we've been talking about 35 minutes now. Um, what's your, your approach in evangelism with Kurdish Muslims? Um, you know, there seems to me to be two, two tracks in engaging with Islam. One is a polemical uh, so really going for it, and the other one is finding common ground. Mm. How, how do you approach it? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, I mean you've got to, you've got to realise that that uh, you've got to think about who you're actually speaking to, and uh, um, some people that we speak to are are very opposed to the majority faith, and they see it as an oppressive force. They they think that. Um, that uh, um, Omar bin Khattab is kind of a, a sort of bet noir because he was the one who brought Islam to um, to that Kurdistan region and to Iran, and they see that as a as a great uh, Arabization of the Kurdish people. So if they already believe that, then it's possible to talk um, about why we also believe that uh, the majority faith is essentially culturally um, imperialistic; that it seeks to impose Arabic culture and um, uh, and thought forms and it's been you know it's had a lot of done a lot of damage although there are good things in the majority culture as well I mean they're you know they're more conservative morally they're, they're dead set against uh, you know the damage of you know um, of uh, casual sex and things like that you know so there's a lot of ways in which you don't want to say all oh, everything's bad about the majority faith but um that that's one approach if if someone is already decided look i i don't agree with the, the faith that i've been brought up with but um for others i think it's good to start with um with, with the common ground i mean i was in a taxi once with a guy who said 
you know, he saw that I had taken a Kurdish name and that uh, I spoke Kurdish. And um, and he said, you know, what, what do you which do you prefer, Kurdistan or Europe? And I answered him in a slightly roundabout way. I said, well, look, I've got three daughters. And so I was beginning to explain to him that actually I find the pressures um, in Western society, um, you know, for just lack of respect for marriage and, you know, the the damage that is done through sexual promiscuity. But I didn't even get there to talk about that. He said to me, so you're a Muslim then? All I'd said to him was, I've got three daughters. <laughs> and so what? What to him, you see someone who cares about the purity of, of their daughters. To him, that's a Muslim. Well, where do you, I mean, do you really want to start with a lambasting that religion to someone like that when he sees his religion as upholding virtue in society? You know, you need to have the approach of Isaiah who said, woe to me, that I uh, that I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. That we've got to be, have some acknowledgement of the corporate sin of of the Western world and the evil that is promoted through Hollywood and through um, all of the the propaganda. You know, the the, the anti marriage, anti God's creation of us as male and female in in the West. You know, we need to preach a jeremiad against those things in order to not because we're homophobic or something but in order to win the respect of muslim people that we speak to so i have many arrows in my quiver um that's one of them but but for those who are very interested whose primary loyalty is their kurdishness rather than their islam uh, i want to say look you're feeling very upset by the decline of the kurds fortunes and i, and I want to say to them look the future of the kurdish people is guaranteed by God's promise to Abraham. You cannot trust the Western powers. Look what they did with, you know, drawing the lines in the sand. And they all know about Sykes-Picot and, um, you know, the Treaty of Sèvres and the Treaty of Lausanne. I mean, that's 100 years ago that, that we're kind of remembering those things um, in the Middle East. And so they feel let down over, over many, many decades. Um, but God has promised that all nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham's seed. And let me tell you about the son of Abraham who came into the world to guarantee by his own blood that people from every nation of the world will be redeemed um, for a new life of purpose and joy with sins forgiven and a new hope in a, in a, in a remade um, global community of brothers and sisters. Yeah. As, as we just wind down now, just one final question. What has worked in your context? Uh, well, yeah, I'd I'd say that um, um, we've talked quite a bit about uh, um, the use of the Psalms. I think that uh, another thing that has been useful is um, international churches that uh, that work hard to um, develop a, a committed membership and uh, that are not about personality cults, but week by week teaching of the scriptures, um, celebration of the Lord's Supper. Um, you know, preaching Christ through, uh, through the sacraments, if you like, um, that, that's, that's something that is important and uh, can be used um, because international churches are in a position to be able to host conferences, to get stuff done in different languages as well, and to try and model that, you know, we're not your masters, we're your brothers and sisters. We too are struggling with, um, with trying to build each other up week by week. Um, churches plant churches, you know, that, that, that is a strategy that I think... Um, can make sense, um, provided that we're not um, provided that we're not saying, "Oh, we want your churches to look exactly like ours," you know, um, because we're 
you know, Christmas is cultural. You know, sitting on chairs is cultural. The guitar is cultural or whatever our, our churches look like. We want to focus on the main things and then try and encourage others who are trying to establish Kurdish-speaking churches, Arabic-speaking churches, to take from the core things we believe and uh, to apply those in, in their context. Rob, thank you so much for what you shared with us. The time has just flown by. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you for you know unpacking that thing about the Psalms, the background of, of the Kurds. Uh, we wish you every blessing as you return thank there. You, David. Um, yeah. Whenever that will be. Okay, and uh, we look forward to hearing how the work progresses. And maybe in a few years we'll have a CD of a Kurdish psalm singing choir or congregation. That would be that would be a real joy. Um, may the Lord establish that. You know, Psalm ninety, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Folks, thank you again for tuning in to the Generation Podcast, for being with us these last 14 minutes. Please stick with us, tell, share it with your friends, tell your friends about them, about it. They say, I've just heard this great podcast by a guy called Rob, and you, you must listen to it and all the other podcasts. Thank you for being with us, and have a great day. God bless. Thank you.